Once more, I should like to read to you the prayer that the Apostle Paul offered for the members of the church at Ephesus, which is to be found in the third chapter of his epistle, beginning at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that he may, might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We are now still looking at this statement here in the 17th verse that ye being rooted and grounded in love. As we've seen, the apostle goes on from step to step. He's praying for these people. He wants them to have this full benefit of all that is in Christ Jesus. He's told them that it was his privilege to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he knows that they're only at the beginning. They don't know Christ in this sense of knowing his unsearchable riches. Many of them felt very poor spiritually and very weak. And he wants them to see that that is wrong. And that it is possible for them eventually, in this extraordinary manner, to be filled with all the fullness of God. But before that is possible, certain things must have happened. Therefore, the first prayer that he offers for them is that they may be strengthened according to the riches of God's glory with might by his Spirit in the inner men. That's the first essential, and we've looked at it. Then the next thing that that leads to, in a sense, is that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. And that, again, is quite fundamental, as we have also seen. And that, in turn, leads to this, that they become rooted and grounded in love. Now, this is the thing I say that is detaining us at the moment. We see that the uh, Apostle's uh, proposition fundamentally is that uh, our whole life must be firmly based upon love. It must draw its life, its strength, its power, its nutriment, its everything from this glorious Christian principle of love, which is, of course, quite inevitable if Christ dwells in the heart. If Christ dwells in our hearts, well, then love is in our hearts, at the center of our being. But the Apostle puts it separately because uh, there is the possibility always of some national idea of Christ dwelling in the heart. And he, ev he evades that danger 
by analyzing it just a little and showing what a practical thing it is. And that, of course, is something which is always essential. And he does it in the form of these two pictures that he gives us, the tree with its deep roots gripping the earth and thereby providing the food and the nutriment and the life and the stability for the tree. He also puts it in terms of this other picture of a building, and this is the one to which we come this morning. You remember that we saw that there are certain things which are common to the two pictures, and yet there are certain things which each one emphasizes in particular. So we must look this morning at the aspects of this matter which come out in terms of this building. We are not only to be rooted in love, we are to be grounded in love. And at once the picture is a very obvious one. It's the picture of a deep and a solid foundation being laid to a great building. So that here the principle is that the Christian's life is one which must be built upon love. Love must be the very foundation of his life. And rarely he cannot know nor manifest this wealth and largeness of the Christian life unless his life is based upon, founded upon, grounded upon this love which is an essential and inevitable part of the life of all in whose hearts Christ has taken up his abode. Well, now there are a number of obvious principles, therefore, that emerge from this particular picture. The first is this, the importance of making sure that the foundation is well and truly laid. These are very obvious principles, but as we proceed to consider them, I think you'll see how prone we all are to forget them or to neglect them. The whole idea of being founded or grounded in love, I say, makes you think at once of a building and the importance of making sure that there is a, a true and a solid foundation. The apostle, you remember we saw in a reference to the third chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, likes to think of himself as a wise master builder. Not merely a master builder, but a wise one. And what makes a man a wise master builder is that he pays tremendous attention to the foundation. He isn't a man who rushes to set up a building. He wants to have something durable and lasting, something solid. Something in which he can dwell for a lifetime and others after him. He's a wise master builder. Well, if he is, he will pay very great attention uh, to a foundation. He'll take a great deal of time over the foundation. He'll go to a, a great deal of trouble with it. A wise master builder never takes anything for granted in the matter of foundations. He wants to know exactly the kind of soil that he's dealing with. Whether there's uh, too much clay there and the possibility of a shifting and a sliding uh, later on, he goes into these things with meticulous care. That's the thing that characterizes the wise master builder. He doesn't do this work hurriedly. He says, now we're going to put up a building. 
And uh, therefore, we, we can't uh, afford to rush this matter, as this is so important, as the whole thing, in a sense, is going to depend upon this. We must take time here. And we must make sure that we are setting this foundation well and truly. The foundation must be well and truly laid. Now, this is, of course, particularly true. If you are proposing to put up a very large building or a very high building, the higher the building, the greater the building, the more importance you have to attach to the foundation. That is a principle in construction and in building. If it's just to be some very light building, just some wooden kind of shack, well then, a temporary affair, you need to be over particular about your foundation. But if you really are going to set up a massive building, if you're thinking in terms of what is called a skyscraper or something like that, a huge building which is going right up into the sky, as it were, with endless numbers of rooms and great weight, well then, of course, obviously, the foundation is absolutely essential and vital. And the more important the building, the greater importance will you have to attach to your foundation. And the more careful you will have to be that it is adequate to maintain the weight and to stand up to the stresses and all the various other things to which this building will become subject. The illustration, I think, is an obvious one. If you've ever read the account of the buildings in New York City, for instance, you will have come across this very principle that kind of building which they have there is possible because of the fact that that island of Manhattan is more or less a solid rock. You can't put up buildings like that everywhere. They don't put up buildings like that in Japan. They're not allowed to. They're not even allowed to do that in a city like Los Angeles. There is a limit to the height. Why? Well, because of the nature of the soil and the subsoil. If you want to set up such buildings, well, then you must be certain and sure by regulation, by law, that you have an adequate foundation. Now that point comes out in a very prominent manner in the New Testament teaching. You see the apostle here is concerned that these Ephesians may go to this height that they shall be filled with all the fullness of God. Ah, we all want that, don't we? Very well, if you do, you'll have to spend a considerable amount of time in preparing the foundation. You can't get there in a hurry. If you want this massive building, well then, you've got to spend a great deal of care and time and attention with your foundation. Now, if I may more or less mix the metaphors, even as the apostle himself does, you notice he puts the rooting and the grounding together. Let me illustrate this point again from, by going to the realm of horticulture. I remember once staying in Western Supermare, when I was preaching there just before the war, with a man who was an expert in growing sweet peas. He had won the first prize challenge cup, whatever it's called, several years in succession at the shows of the Royal Horticultural Society. And I happened to be staying with him at the very time when these uh, sweet peas were in full bloom. And he took me out, and I greatly admired them, and I asked the obvious question. I said, well, is there any one secret above all others 
which you can tell me of in connection with this. Uh, what is it that enables you to win the prize like this every year? Is there one thing more important than everything else? And he said, there is. Uh, and I asked him, well, what is that? I said, particularly what gives you this great height? Ah, he said, that's very simple. If you want great height, you must dig deeply. The height, he said, above the earth must correspond to the height below the earth. Or the other way around, the height below the earth, the roots must be as deep as the height that you require. If you want a given height, well, dig down to a certain depth, and then you'll get your height. That's the principle. There is an inevitable correspondence between the height of the growth and the depth of the root. There is a, the, same corresponding, the same correspondence between the height and the weight of your building and the foundation which you are going to lay. Now then, that is the principle which it seems to me the Apostle is here emphasizing. He is preparing the way, you see, for this height and depth and length and breadth and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that he might be filled with all the fullness of God. There's the building. Very well, he says. Don't rush your foundation. Spend time. Make sure that all is well there. Well, our Lord, of course, himself has said it all perfectly once and forever. You remember his parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of the two houses. And the one thing he emphasizes there is the foundation. Now, the account of that in the Gospel according to St. Luke in chapter 6 gives us a detail which you don't find in Matthew 7. In Luke 6, 48, this is what you read. Uh, he that heareth these sayings of mine and keepeth them is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. Now, in Matthew, it's just He's like the wise man who built his house upon a rock. Yes, says Luke, but there's more. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And that man, you remember, is contrasted with the man who built his house upon the sand. A man who wants quick returns. I'm only interested in houses, said the man. I'm not interested in foundations. I want a house to sit in comfortably. He wants a quick experience. So he doesn't bother about foundation. Builds on the sand, doesn't dig deep. And so when the storms and the trials come, his poor house that seems so wonderful is demolished. Ah, if you want these things, says our Lord, if you want to live the life corresponding to the Beatitudes, if you really want to be my disciples truly, dig deep. Lay a solid foundation upon a rock. Well, now I say that is the principle which the apostle is here emphasizing, which we can put, if you like, like this. There are no shortcuts in the spiritual life. These things take time. The apostle doesn't merely pray for these people that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. You, you, it just can't happen like that. It doesn't happen like that. No, no, you must be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. There must be this reinforcing, as it were, all round. You put down your piles, and then you pour in your concrete. You lay this solid, massive foundation because there's something tremendous going to be put upon it as a superstructure. That's the principle. No shortcuts in the spiritual life. There are in the cults always, and that is where they are so essentially different 
from the Christian experience, it's all so easy, it's so quick, it can happen in a moment. There's no need for all this which we find here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the scripture. It's not the cults. It's never the false interpretation of the scripture. But here we must take time with these matters. Without this strengthening with might by his spirit and Christ dwelling in the heart. Without being grounded in love. We have no hope of knowing these higher experiences of the Christian life. A familiar word tells us, take time to be holy. It's perfectly true. And we must also take time to make sure that our life is based on love. You can't rush through these things. You can't say, ah, but I want the experience. You've got to go in this way. There are rules in the construction, if I may so put it, of the Christian life and experience. And this is one of the most vital of all. Very well, let me come to the details. What does this foundation mean? How is it to be laid? What have I to observe? Well, the first thing is this. Our relationships must be based upon love in the Christian life. This is to be grounded, founded in love. Our relationships. What do I mean? Well, I mean, for instance, our relationship to God. I will never know the love of God unless my relationship to him is one of love. This is quite basic. What is our relationship to God this morning? What's our way of thinking about God? Is it theoretical only? Is it intellectual only? Oh, how easy it is to think of God only intellectually. And to be arguing and talking about him and reading about him and to be debating about him. And how glibly we've all done it. I say this, God ought to do this and that. That's a purely theoretical view of God. There's no love there at all. And if our attitude to God is only theoretical and intellectual, we have no hope of being filled with all the fullness of God or of really knowing his love and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's ask ourselves for a minute, what is my habitual attitude towards God? Is it one of love? That's what he calls the first commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. That's what the Bible always says. Not only to believe in God but to love him. That's, it's a personal relationship. God isn't impersonal. God is not just a force. He isn't that X, that unknown quantity in your philosophical system. That's what he is to the philosophers. They talk about the absolute. That's a category. That's not a person. But God's a person. And therefore, if we're in the Christian relationship to God, it will be one of love, inevitably. Now, we mustn't go a step forward until we are clear about this. Do I love God? Is that my way of thinking of him and of my relationship to him? And in exactly the same way, it mustn't be merely one of fear or of dread. There is ever to be, of course, a reverential awe. But it's not the fear that hath torment, 
because perfect love casteth out fear. And the relationship of the Christian is that of child to father. As Christians, God is not merely some great power away in the heavens. He's my father. Paul says that he bows his knees unto the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's the way to pray. That you know you're going to your Father. He loves you and you love him because he is your Father. Now, how vital it is to take time over a thing like this. You see, somebody says, ah, but I say my prayers every day. I pray to God every day. My dear friend, I know, but you know, much more important than saying our prayers or what we may say in our prayers is this. What is our attitude towards him when we do pray to him? Sometimes, just to stay in his presence and to say nothing is much more expressive than saying things. To gaze and gaze on thee, says Faber. It's the contemplation of God, the adoration, the worship. That's the highest expression of our love to God. And now what the apostle is saying is this, that our whole life must be based on that. That's the foundation. I am certain that there are many who have spent a lifetime in seeking what I am thus calling these higher experiences in the Christian life and have never obtained them because they've gone wrong on a first principle such as that. They've taken it for granted. They've rushed instead of knowing that they truly love God. And you will only love God as you realize the truth about him and what he's done in his son, the beginnings of the gospel. They should inevitably lead us to love God. But come, let me hurry on. We are not only to love God, but we are to love one another. We are to love the brethren. And of course, this is another great theme in the scriptures. You and I, my friends, can go around all the meetings and the conventions and seek some particular blessing, some it. We'll never get it unless our life is grounded in love. Unless we love one another. Ah, how easy it is to say, oh, that I might be filled with all the fullness of God. In the meantime, you're neglecting something which is very obvious and glaring in your personal relationships with somebody else. It's no use. This is not a matter of argument. I'm not even appealing to you. I'm putting it to your common sense. This is one of those things that is just impossible. If the foundation isn't right, You'll never have this great building. Never. It's impossible. So we must take time with this. this. These are the scriptural injunctions. The second great commandment following loving the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength is this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Indeed it goes further. It says love your enemies. Love your enemies. Doesn't matter what you say about them. Ah, they're different. I know. They've done things, certainly. All right. Love your enemies. That's the answer. You remember how our Lord himself has said this more clearly than anywhere else in the scripture, again in the Sermon on the Mount. There it is at the end 
of the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, where he contrasts his way with every other way. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's the basis of the Christian life. That's the thing that differentiates us from the non-Christian. He loves people who love him, but he doesn't love his enemies. He hates them as they hate him and because they hate him. But that isn't being Christian. Anybody can do that. Everybody is doing it. Here is the very foundation of the Christian life. And until we are on this foundation, I say you're wasting time in seeking any higher experiences. You'll never know the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ which passeth knowledge until you're on this foundation. That's the argument of this section. Listen to the Apostle Paul following his master and putting it in his way. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Here it is. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was that? Well, it was this, wasn't it? That there he was in heaven in the form of God, enjoying it from eternity to eternity. But he came on earth and humbled himself. Why? Ah, because he didn't regard all that as a prize to be clutched at and to be held on to. He forsook that, the signs, the glory, the wonder of it all, and came in the form of a man, in the likeness of flesh, made himself a servant, even humbled himself to the death of the cross. For whom? Why? Well, for us. Why, because we were so lovely in his sight, because we were so lovable and because we loved him, the exact opposite. It was in spite of us, though we were rebels and hateful and hating one another and hating him. That's it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this is something that you and I have to cultivate. We have to examine ourselves. We have to say, are we doing that? How am I behaving to these other people? The brethren, those who are enemies, those who are hateful and who are hating us and maligning us and being spiteful to us, what of them? Well, I must consider this and I must not move an inch until I am in the position when I can honestly say I love them and I pray for them. I pray that God may have mercy and pity upon them. Open their eyes and bring them to himself. Until I do that, I say it is idle for me to seek some higher experience. You see how important the foundation is. 
one of the most subtle temptations of the devil is to get people to ignore foundations and to rush on to the higher experiences. And they spend a lifetime and they say, but I don't seem to be able to get this. Well, you read the lives of people who have had it and you'll find that they've known tremendous humblings and humiliations. They've been lying in the dust and groveling in it. There was everything in them that wanted them to react. They'd got a proud, self-righteous spirit. They had to crucify it. They had to take that place of death with Christ. They had to say, I must have this mind in me also. And it was only after they took the trouble and disciplined themselves and apparently had lost everything and had become a doormat for the whole world that then God suddenly revealed himself to them and filled them with this knowledge of his love and with his own fullness. The foundation, loving one another, loving the brethren, and it happens when Christ truly dwells in the heart. Then the next thing I must mention is this. Our attitude towards the commandments of the Christian life must also, must also be one of love, if we really would have this great building erected. You realize what I mean by this? Our attitude towards the commandments of the Christian life. And you know the Christian life is full of commandments. Sermon on the Mount, there you are. And all this royal law of love, all these commandments that are here in such profusion in these epistles, all that has got to be lived, the Ten Commandments, there it is, still in operation, the commandments of the Christian life. Here is a question, therefore. Do I love the Lord's commandments? I'm a Christian. You remember what the psalmist could say about it, don't you? And he had never had this experience that you and I have had under the new dispensation of the Christian life. He's looking forward to it only. He's in the days of shadows and of types. Christ hadn't come. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given in this particular way. But he can say this. Oh, how love I thy law. I love thy commandments above gold. He says it's sweeter to him than honey and the honeycomb. Great peace, he says, have they that love thy law. There's a man in those times who loves the law of God. Do we? The Apostle John puts it in this way. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. What about it, my friend? You want to know the love of Christ that passeth knowledge? You say, I'd give the whole world. If only I could say that I am filled with all the fullness of God. Wait a minute, let me ask a preliminary question. Do you love the commandments of the Bible? Or do you regard this Christian life as being narrow? You say, I don't see why I shouldn't enjoy my life as I want to. Is that it? Well, if it is, believe me, you'll never know what it is to be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, the Christian life is narrow in certain respects. It has its prohibitions perfectly clear and definite. They're in the Ten Commandments. They're in this law in the New Testament. There are certain things Christians don't do. If you really want still to live that worldly life, well, of course, it's for you to decide. All I'm saying is this. You cannot have that and this at the same time. They don't go together. If you want that, well, 
You'll never have this great building. If you want this, build a solid foundation. Dig deep. Get down to the rock. Make sure that you're on the foundation. There are so many Christians, you see, who seem to regard the Christian life as narrow, irksome, grievous. And they're always fighting against it. It's hopeless. Here is a part of the very foundation of the Christian life that we really want to live like this, that we've lost our taste for that. Ye that love the Lord hate evil, says an Old Testament word again. And therefore, if we find ourselves this morning in this position, that we are living the Christian life as we are living it as a matter of duty, having to force ourselves or to compel ourselves, ever having to drive ourselves to do it, I say, don't consider this third of Ephesians. You're in no position for it. The very foundation for this is that we desire this. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. They are the people who are going to be filled with the Spirit. They are the people who are going to enjoy this full blessing, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Not after the blessing, but after righteousness. It's foundation, you see. Now this is, I say, where the Christian life differs from every other type of life. Indeed, this is where it differs uh, from what was often mistakenly regarded as Puritanism in the last century. It was a sort of legalism, and people have reacted against that quite rightly. But they've gone to the other extreme, to a laxity. This is Christian liberty. That a man loves the law of the Lord and hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Doddridge has put it, once and forever, by saying, I count it my supreme delight to hear thy dictates and obey. Well, there it is, I leave it at that so that I come to my last principle, which is this. The foundation always suggests stability, doesn't it? And that is the peculiar thing that comes out in this picture. I put it, therefore, as a principle in these words, that our love must not be fitful, it must not be variable. It must be solid, on a foundation that never shakes and never moves. What a test. We all know what it is to have occasional spasms, of this Christian love, don't we? You may get it in a service. You may get it when you're singing a hymn. You may get it when you're reading a book. You may get it as you look at some beautiful sunset. We know what it is to have occasional flashes of love. Something happens, certain circumstances, and we feel we really love God. But then the next moment it's gone, and the next day it seems as if it had never been. Our love comes and goes. No, that's not a solid foundation, is it? But our life is to be grounded in love, founded on. You see, our love is meant to be like God's love. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, and his perfection in love consists of this, that his love is self-generated. It doesn't depend upon anything outside itself. It's a love that starts within and goes out. 
That's why God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was in spite of what he saw in the world. It wasn't his response to a demand from men. Not at all. It was his own self-generated love pouring itself out. It starts in him. It's based upon itself. And your love and mine must be. And they will, and it will be, if our life is grounded in love. But then take this principle, which is so important. Our love must be so firm and so founded on this foundation that nothing will be able to move it or to shake it or to affect it to the slightest extent. Now, I think you'll agree that that is the test of a solid foundation, isn't it? Doesn't matter whether the wind and the storm comes or not, the house on the rock stands, the others demolish. If you want a building that won't be swaying in the breeze, dig deep and have a solid foundation. Now, how vital this is. I wonder how our love faces this test this morning. Does our love for other people vary according to their variations? If so, it isn't founded. It isn't truly based on this foundation. You see, this isn't merely scripture. This is even Shakespeare. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh, no. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. That's what Shakespeare says. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds. That's human erotic love. That's the natural love. That's not this agape, this love of God in the heart. This doesn't change. It remains in spite of men. I've quoted Shakespeare to you. Listen to the Apostle Paul putting it. Love suffereth long and is kind. Why does it suffer long? Well, because it's on a foundation, you see. It can stand up to the stresses. It is not easily provoked. A love which is easily provoked isn't very deep, is it? Love beareth all things, believeth all things, Hopeth all things, endureth all things. Change in the other, malice, spite, bitterness, hatred, anything you can put there. All these things. But love stands, it beareth all things. It believeth all things, it hopeth all things. It endureth all things. Love never faileth. Never. It doesn't matter what comes against it. The foundation is so deep, it just stands as if nothing had happened. Have you ever at the seaside in the storm watched the waves dashing themselves against a mighty cliff or rock? Back they go and come with redoubled energy, and the gale comes and adds its force, and the waves lash themselves, but the rock remains unmovable as if nothing had happened. Love never faileth. Is our love like that, my friends? Can it stand up to the changes in others? Yes, but not only that, can it stand up to changing circumstances? 
Can it stand up to trials and tribulations? They come, they're bound to come. But our love, if it's deeply grounded, can stand whatever may be happening. Listen to Job putting it. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I care not what he does. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's it. Or take Paul and Silas at Philippi. Arrested. Quite illegally and wrongfully. Scourged until their poor backs were bleeding with the stripes that they'd been given. Molested, ill-treated, abused. Thrown into the prison, put into the innermost prison of all. And their feet cast in the stocks, in the dank, damp cell. With nothing to comfort them and to cheer them. Everything's gone against them. Yet what is their reaction? At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. What's the reason? What's the explanation? Well, it's just what I'm trying to say. Their love was rooted, their whole life was rooted and grounded in love. In heavenly love abiding, no change. My heart shall fear, for safe is such confiding, for nothing changes here. The storm may rage about me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me. And can I be dismayed? Of course not. Very well then, my friends, there it is. Nothing but a great deep love to God can stand up to the trials and the stresses and the hazards and the strains of life. You see what I mean? Belief alone is not enough. Belief is essential and it will take you a long way. But when the real storms come, Belief is not enough. It takes love to stand up to the storms. Yes, says Blaise Pascal in a profound bit of psychological and spiritual insight. The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. When all around my soul gives way, he only is my strength and stay. When I don't understand, when my intellect is baffled, and when I cannot explain, love still holds. Oh, the vital importance of taking time with the foundation. And of being rooted and grounded in love. It's only when you've got this foundation that then, as the apostle says, that he may be able to comprehend with all saints this love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Before we come to next Sunday, my dear friend, God willing, make certain that the foundation is right. Amen.